to the Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, mob. Welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since I've posted last, which has definitely been the longest in between episodes. Uh, I had a few cancellations and I am lazy and vague and life just generally got in the way of life. But here we are again and on today's episode we're featuring, sorry, I am featuring, the Octarine Tree podcast is featuring, someone who has been something of a mentor of mine for many years and a dear friend, Lord DeAngelis. You may know as La DeAngelis. She changed her name relatively recently, and we go into that a little bit during the discussion. Law is the author of, geez, I think at least nine books, probably more. She can be tricky to describe, so I'm just gonna do the lazy thing and read straight from her bio on her website. Lord DeAngelis is an indigenous Catavalan Briganti knowledge holder with strong genealogical taproots of Scandinavian, Irish and Breton ancestry and is learned in the landscapes and story of these living people and species. She's a scholar and a defender of culture, language, freedom of speech, gender, diversity, equality, parity, homeland and right to respect. Writer, psychic, initiator, and master storyteller, Lyde Angeles has been in print for decades. She facilitates the immersive, initiatory, rivers in the skin experience, a deeply moving and life-altering ceremonial, ceremonial awakening of ancestral presences, and the rewilding of a Celtic ancestry long thought gone. Challenging but ultimately liberating, particularly for those having suffered spiritual and cultural misappropriation and oppression, and has worked with the public with tarot for over 40 years. That gives you some idea of who Law is. We did have a little bit of trouble recording this at first. We got off to a start of maybe 10 minutes and Zoom just crashed. So then I had to move from my little office, not my huge amazing studio space into my living room. So it was a bit echoey, but I think we pulled it off. Lost some good chat at the beginning though, but say la vie. Uh, in this discussion, we discuss, as you do in discussions, we discuss the power of language, etymology, Law's story of being bought and sold as a child, and the path to knowing her heritage, more about language, the indigenous Britons and indigeneity in general, and more about language, in particular my language, and how I need to pull my shit together. So. Without a further do-do, Lord Angeles. Okay, take two, Lord Angeles. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. Shall we try this again? We'll try this again. Okay, so I'm going to assume that we lost the original file. Zoom just dropped out on us, which has never happened to me before. We were discussing the uh, etymology of the name Melbourne, the city from which you are currently calling. You were saying that you, you don't even care to know the history of the name, given how uh, gruesome colonial names of other places around Australia. 
And I was saying that in Perth, Western Australia, we have a quote-unquote colonial patriarch named Captain Sterling, who, as it turns out, in the clear light of retrospect, was nothing short of a genocidal monster. Yeah. And that the electorate named for him is currently undergoing a process to see whether or not that people want it renamed. And there's quite a push. Then I went on to say that I remember back, being back in Melbourne years ago and there was a group of people soaring the noses off statues. This is where our Zoom meeting cut out last time. Close to it. I didn't hear about the noses on the statues. But then again, I think all statues should come down. In parts of the ancient world, the Egyptians come to mind. The nose was symbol of the breath of life. But you see, there's, a, there's going to be a difficulty in our conversation if, we, if I don't sort of like discuss this with you now, mm. um, if I may, yeah. I am not Middle Eastern and therefore I'm very aware of what scholars have said and what they write about, mm. but I'm also very aware that those scholars are almost like pearls along the blockchain of an academia that's associated with the Middle Ages and honestly as a result of all that with the aristocracy and as a result of the church. So the the mentality, I suppose, of the <clears throat> these statements, the mentality of the people or the psychology, <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, the, the mold, the psychology of the academics who make these statements um, are not necessarily based on facts. A few years ago, I watched a documentary. This is going back maybe 10, 15 years ago. I watched a documentary on um an archaeologist, young archaeologist who was visiting Egypt and he was standing on top of the Sphinx with the curator of the um, Cairo Museum and he explained that the runnels along the Sphinx were associated with the rainforest and that the actual age of the Sphinx and yeah. the timing associated with the Sphinx was completely wrong yeah. and the curator made the comment, what? So we're supposed to go and change all our history books? Right, yeah. That's Dr. Robert Schock's work, I think. Okay, so that's that's the drama that we're experiencing in a, a, still a very dominant colonialist atmosphere and environment Yeah. Um, that's occurring in this whole continent, which, of course, is made up of many countries, none of which <clears throat> have the right to claim European titles at all. It, that needs to stop. Yeah, and I get this is where I wonder the breadth and depth of gravity of the required rethinking, reshuffling, changing, growing of our perceptions and our language to be, you know, in, in right relationship with others and reality. Okay. Can I stop you for a second? Can I stop you for you a second? Stop me whenever you want. I don't like the inclusion, Byron. Which inclusion? Our and and Ours and we right. in collect in connection with um, if I've if I've created a problem <clears throat> in a in a society or another person's life, I'll own it. Right, I'll claim it. Mm -hmm. But to be included in a bureaucratic ideology that I have no part of in in my own personal way of life, I won't claim it, and I don't like the word we or the all to be included in that. Okay. So I know it's a generalised thing that, that happens as a society, mm. but we it's also important that you and I talk 
from your your point of view and my point of view without generalizing to do with other people. I can't do it. Sure. I've learned learned not to, and I would be betraying what I've learned if I did. Sure. That. Well, I appreciate that. I usually try to be mindful of that kind of language and use myself as opposed to, you know, others. So I'll rephrase that. I, as someone who is aware of, fuck, how do I state this? How far? <laughs> I've how, stopped you up, haven't I? No, it's good. It's good. But if we recognize the, the importance and power of, of language and we, fuck, and I, if I understand the importance and power of language and I have an intention to lean into a greater and greater fidelity of language, how far do I have to go in terms of eradicating certain terms, excavating the past or whatever I need to excavate to find more appropriate terminology? How far does one go? How far do I have to go to do that, to rearrange my language and my perception? All the way. Right. Okay. So where do we find the more appropriate language? Um, when you listen back to what you just said a few minutes ago, you're going to hear yourself having said the terms greater and greater. Yeah, I will. And, of course, you're going to want to slap yourself. I'm going to regret it because, yeah. <laughs> but it's worth leave. I think it's a worthy thing to leave in there, but at the same time the word worth is again. All right, let's, let's if we can open this up a little bit. Masses of our terminology include words associated with profit and loss. Yeah. Even the term worthy. Um, if a situation is salient, it's associated with the salt coming from the mines. <clears throat> that of course at one stage you use slave labor. Where do where does an individual begin? I can only talk for myself and I was a bought human being and I received my freedom. I didn't receive it, I got it. Right. My freedom from having been involved in what could only be called um pale person slavery on the 1st of December 2020. Prior to that, the origins of my human beingness as an animal person began as an item of sale. Therefore, I had no known identity except the identity that was created for me by total strangers. And my identity, which includes my heritage and my ancestry, was a state of abject confusion until probably around <clears throat> 2003. Right. So between 2003 and the present day, I have found my mother and in the last 12 months, yes, found my father. And that's included a massive amount of information that was, a, that was gathered by a representative of the Attorney General of New South Wales. Okay. Um, therefore, I have a heritage. The heritage of my mother was traced through Bernard Casimir thesignsofthetimes.com.au, who is a genealogist of 30 decades. 30 years. Um, my heritage was traced through the roots of so-called history. Uh, by the way, I use the term so-called very often. I do, ex do oh, ask you to forgive me that. You can always clip that out. Um, but I use it because I don't have a word to rep to replicate the word no that, that that's crux of my that's the crux of my question before i've walked 
very young because of the result of having been owned and manipulated by the Catholic Church, which I will talk about publicly anytime you like, um, having been owned and, and sold through the Catholic Church, first of all, I'm caught in that web, which is the first web, if you like, at the very top of a canyon that's a chasm probably 1,000, 2,250 billion years old. So I've started the journey down. This is such a long conversation and, and it may be irrelevant, but however, I, I started the journey down and the journey down, first of all, was to break away in the 1960s into a place of rebellion. And the rebellion may have been on the surface one of confusion to, to do with Vietnam War, God Save the Queen, um, men and women having specific roles, no identification with the LGBTQI community, <clears throat> racism, abject bigotry. So my, my younger years were all associated with that. Right. And so my urge probably at a very, when I became, when I was released from the benzodiazepam nightmare of the people who owned me, which was around 15 with two near-death experiences, <clears throat> I went on the rampage and started the protest against these terminology without knowing much. From there, it was not that big a deal to go into an ideology. I guess I'll, st I'll stay now, an ideology that, that, that became known as Wicca, which, of right. course, it's, that's all an invention of Gerald Gardner and a, and a whole crew of dirty old men beside the point. And then, of course, to go from there into the realisation and waking up to the realisation this was another form of monotheism mm -hmm. and it was another form of cultural misrepresentation. That started the, the, the free fall down this abyss. Okay. And it's been a very grand free fall because... 40, 40 years or so, my studies led me with a fascination, almost like obsession, to the times of both Julius Caesar's first invasion of Britain and then Claudius' second invasion of Britain in what's known as the Common Era. And there was a chronicler with, classic, with Claudius known as Tacitus, or if I was speaking with a kind of Celtic tongue, I would say Tacitus. Tacitus, because there's no C. Consequently, those 40 years ended up becoming the seed mm. of the understanding when my genealogy was done, that the one of the men I was writing about was, was is my direct ancestor. Okay. So at that time, Interesting, I breathed huh? into the understanding that I am both Catavalon and Brijantach. Okay. Once realizing that, are they tribes? Of course. Okay. Yep. Once realizing that, I felt in almost the bowel of me this sense of responsibility. Okay. And that responsibility was not only to my ancestral law, excuse me, taking my name in vain, but that's why I've taken this name, yeah. but also to people of every other Indigenous culture who have a right to self-determination. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I have to, myself claiming and my freedom from a bureaucracy that thought it was okay to steal little white kids mm. and put them in somebody and sell them to people who hadn't been vetted. Mm. 
is this yeah that's it so the 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 word witchery or word magic that comes with that mm. is that what i do is i hear and i learned this from john young ring a bell yes okay deep listening john young i i discussed i, I listened to his talk at the schumacher college in dartmoor on deep listening mm -hmm. and this is only recent but it was the second phase of a big phase. The first one occurred in 1992 when my Golden Holden was fucking up and I needed to have the head replaced. And my son, who at the time was 19, said, Mother, I can do it. And I said, I've got to find a mechanic in this area who's not going to rip me off. Thanks very much, but I've got to do this anyway. And he's saying, Mother, I can do it. And I'm blah, 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 blah on about the mechanic necessary because I don't trust mechanics. And he took my face in his hands and he said, you don't listen. Right. That was the beginning. Okay. The realisation that I don't listen and that people around me are also not listening. They're waiting to say what they want to say. Okay. And therefore lies the, the misery of this traumatised uh, or this what seems almost societal around me, a society that's in a sense of rage or complete apathy. Yeah. And I hear people saying this is new and it isn't new. Very, very old, but it's not recorded by the historians of pale Anglo-European backgrounds because they don't want the general public or the so-called schooling system, I won't say education because it isn't education, they don't necessarily want the schooling system to impart <clears throat> a truth of brutality and indoctrination into a general public because if that was to happen, question was would be raised up and revolution would take place by those of us who don't understand and can't comprehend the need for racism and bigotry and power over. So there you go. That's why the words matter. Yeah, I agree. They do matter. I use words like indigenous and traditional peoples and culture to describe a certain thing, phenomena, identity. Yeah, fuck, it feels like every sentence that's going to come out of my mouth could be unpacked or critiqued or broken down. Yeah, I'm, and that, I'm, do, I'm doing it now. I do yeah. apologise, no, no, but no, I no. am doing it. No, no, that's it. cool. This is going to be the very the crux of where this discussion is going is about that. It's unpacking language. So we have, it's inevitable. It's a balance between just saying whatever one has to say with the best tools they have. How is that good enough? How is that good enough? It's not. It's I mean, not. Excuse the term good. It's not. But this, this is the crux of this discussion. It's not good enough. Mm. My question, if I could be uh, forgiven or excused for using. Oh, don't, don't, don't ask for forgiveness, please. Just do it. Just say what you've got to say. Byron. Okay. If we can call something or someone indigenous, right, what's the opposite of that or what's the alternative? Paras would parasitic work? What is that? So if, if the human. What is human, right? So what, what is an Indigenous culture? What is an Indigenous individual? What is Indigenous thinking and ways of thought? These are all different questions. Okay. Well, I'm just I'm trying to get an idea for what, we, what, what am I in? The first thing I'd like to suggest is that the one thing that 
it's necessary to be aware of is that we're an animal species. We're a mammal. And get that right. We've got we're we're ahead, we're way ahead. If we can understand that we are a mammal, <clears throat> that we breed like any other mammal, like rabbits, but we have been indoctrinated into this construct around family or society. Who knows where this began? This could have easily have begun 10.5,000 years ago, as anthropologists have suggested in the Mesopotamian Delta, when somebody locked up the grain, because we're not a grain eater by nature. So we've been manipulated even at that stage. If it has been suggested that eating grain, without getting onto food too much, eating grain is the last thing we would do we're in, we would have to be starving to eat the grass. We're not a herbivore. The interesting thing is the idea that... That's why we ate acorns. Well, yes, there's, as a form of what we call flower. Yeah. <clears throat> but the first thing is that we're just an animal. We're an animal. Right. And the other thing is when, when I'm born, and I was a vaginal birth from the birth records that I've read, I inherited through those vaginal vernix 2.5 billion years of ancestral microbiome. That's right. the first thing. So I've in the, <clears throat> the eggs of my ovaries is every mother that's ever been. Okay. And therefore also every father that's ever been. Now I have narrowed down who I am as Lord DeAngelis particularly since my freedom, but before that, narrowed that down to an understanding of a very small portion of ancestry. But that very small selection of ancestry is strong enough that for 40 years I was studying it without knowing that it was my ancestry. <clears throat> then to claim that ancestry is if I introduce myself to you, I'm introducing myself to another animal who has 2.5 billion years worth of ancestral knowledge right. in your skin, in your gut, in your mm -hmm. eyes, in every cell, in every atom of your body. Therefore, words do have an effect in such a way as governments utilising terminology that is both Machiavellian mm -hmm. but, very, and, and, but very also... Um, commercial and also colonialist and yeah. that does include the words why we why we are indoctrinated into using the words we this inclusion that happens all through social media <clears throat> that is based on a very shallow concept or construct of what we call history and let's face it who wrote the stories of history and why hasn't slavery been brought into that conversation and why hasn't the slaughter of indigenous people. Okay, back to that. Mm. Back to that. Yeah. Your your question regarding indigeneity. Yes, sure. Okay. Can I just? This is my opinion mm -hmm. only. That if I have a known seventy thousand year historical ancestral identity, a mm. known yes identity, then. That class, I can say I'm Indigenous to that particular environment, particularly if I have the memory of the law of land <clears throat> and weather patterns yep. and the, the procession of stars 
and the understanding of kinship systems everywhere else and the the rights of of it, of differentiation mm-hmm. that occur within those kinship systems then i could call myself indigenous now if i can just extend that a little further there's a really important thing to consider if we consider for a moment the idea that we're an animal yeah when i lived at wilson's creek which is where i first met you yeah many years ago yeah. Um, which was a, a time of intense trauma for me that I, I, I won't get into. What I was aware of was listening to the ravens at sunset. The ravens would have been easily six kilometres apart. They would have been in approximately four directions that I'm aware of, sometimes five, and they would call to each other. And yes. I sat listening, attempting to understand a language that I was arrogant enough to have ignored yeah. until this moment. Yeah. And this language taught me something important. What the ravens were doing were calling, look over there, mate, you've got, you got rabbits. Look over there, mate, you've got, you got dead carcasses on the side of the road. Just watch out for the fucking trucks because they're coming along. You've got this conversation taking place by the guardians or the warriors of that clan. Now, that clan of ravens, they've done their conversation, they've set themselves up for the night. Right. If another another group of ravens walks on into that territory and says, oh, get the fuck out of here, we can take over, we've got a right to take over, and the first lot of ravens say, why, you haven't been in here in in this territory for a million years, why are you coming in now? And and the other ravens say, oh, because we like your seed, Mm. so fuck off out of here or kill you. We got the and because sort. the first lot of ravens say we're not going to go, the second lot of ravens kills them. Pretty much that's what's happening mm-hmm. as a species to mm-hmm. us, by us. And, yes, I'm using a generalised uh, multi, multi-person term there. And the will and ability for that, indigenous group to fight back to claim autonomy and fight back but do they fight back well sometimes they have sometimes they haven't but nowadays i see the monopolization of violence by the state like i have a dear group of friends who a lot of them are very clever people but something that strikes me now is the utter like complacence and apathy and just wiping one's hands clean of it and oh well can't fight progress the surveillance state is is coming, but there's nothing we can do about it. It's like I just like grow some fucking like get some fucking adrenal glands. Like you're allowed to fucking say no. You're allowed to, you know, you you are an animal. So many of our animal propensities towards boundaries, creating boundaries and autonomy and rights in search of a, a another term has been head fucked out of us to the point now where Anyone who questions the sanctioned narrative now is a fucking some right-wing conspiracy theorist thug. Okay, can I disagree with all of that? Sure. (laughs) I was anticipating that anyway. Along with being an animal is the understanding that there is no God. That's first off. While you talk about authorities, people in positions of, of authority, people in the know, uh, surveillance state, etc. 
the words that you're using are dividing people into those who agree with the surveillance state and those who don't. And what I'm suggesting is that all of this is God-bothering. Now, one thing I'm aware of is, is when my nest is messy, I'm going to clean it up. When, um, when my nest is beyond my nest and it's too big, like what's happening with the huge big agricultural uh, machinery that's, that's ripping the nutrients out of the soil, yeah. agribusiness, right, that I see anyway, what I'm realising is that there's an animal riding ripshot over the top of us. Okay, but to get into a, a stress mode about it is to forget that we're an animal and think that the church was right and that in some way we are right and they are wrong. But you see, they, if I can speak for the other people that I'm talking about here, like the agricultural businesses and, and the, the governments of Australia. Mm -hmm. I'll, resist, I'll resist pulling you up on the using the word they, but go on. But I, as I'm just saying now, to use the generalised term they, mm -hmm. is to seed authority. But it's also to suggest that there's an us and them and that there's a right and wrong and that we have the right of it, whereas they are they are probably thinking, and this is a generalised observational term of media, that they're right. I wonder whether Pol Pot thought he was right. I wonder if Bolsonaro thinks he's right. I wonder if the fucking Queen of England thinks that she's right. You see, it's all relativity when in actuality, when in actuality over the process of, say, two, three, four, five million years, we don't know our destiny as a holistic earth. And who's to say that we are indifferent to the rest of earth? And therefore, who's to say that we can control or manipulate whether or not Earth is going in, in the right direction? It's a bit patronising, don't you think? I have, have trouble with the word steward or custodian, like humans as a steward species or custodian species. It's, it's a very irrelevant term, yes. So where the fuck are we and where do we go? Like, it, this, it's so labyrinthine. The, the first, I mean, ultimately... From my point of view, mm -hmm. it's everything's about love. Now, I'll break that apart because I don't agree with the word. It's a generalisation. It's a very generic term. It's thrown around. I can love my cat, my dog, my car, <clears throat> love my new microphone, love the weather today, or I can love my, my children. And it's all variations and there's no meaning behind it. But when I break the word open and I include words like honour, respect, reciprocity, mutuality, awe, and, and um, consideration, then I can recognise the word for being something other than just a throwaway word. Right. If those mixes, if those parts of the, for lack of a better expression, a, a cake, if those yeah. parts that make up the cake are not recognised and we only look at the cake, it's like getting your Uber food delivered at night and never growing a garden. 
and never knowing what's nourishment for the garden. <clears throat> all life talks to it ourselves. We talk to ourselves all the time. And that includes every the 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 need, for example, to turn the soil. I, I don't know. I think that um Rianne Eisler uh wrote the book that wrote the book The Chalice and the Blade. Right. Okay, yes. And from that came Daniel Quinn's Ishmael. Right. Considered the the hypothesis of a taker and lever culture. Mm-hmm. And that at some stage, according to Rianne Eisler's hypothesis, we developed what could only be called what she, what she calls a, a, an aberrant gene. And the aberrant gene, it, of course this makes sense to me, but this might just be me. The oh. aberrant gene of a taker culture doesn't recognise, like a, a, a person who rapes another human being, doesn't recognise that they're causing harm. Reciprocity is a term that I've added to my language thanks to reading the work and listening to the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer. Now, Dr. Kimmerer is a Potawatomi woman of the Ojibwe nations, and she wrote one of the books that she's written is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, yeah, I've read that one. Yep. Okay. Um, So her understanding of language came past me when I was writing my memoir, Initiation, released in 2016, Mm-hmm. And one of the people working with me to make certain I had that formatted and aligned in a in a, an easy to read fashion, sent me this article from Moon Magazine, where Robin Wall Kimmerer discusses the use of the word "it" uh-huh. and discusses the objectivity yeah. of the world. And there again, in, in that lies the us and themness, which of course is raised up by the in the prince in Machiavellian thought to do with divide and conquer, mm-hmm. or divide them to, to shut them up. Mm-hmm. Ideology, hmm? the depersonizing of other, which is yes, which is still happening, and has been what appears historically to be the medium of not only hypocrisy but manipulation for personal gain for as long as I've been reading history books or books on history. Now, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a a botanist, a botany professor. So she speaks fluent language and she also loves the English language. Now, I love the English language. It's such a bastard, you see. And exploring the, the forest or the forêt sauvage of this bastard has been a labour of love, and I use love in regards to the terminology that I earlier understood. So when Robin Wall Kimmerer, when I was first sent the article on Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, she was attempting to learn to speak Potawatomi, and from what, from my recollection, there were nine Potawatomi speakers left in the world. Yeah, and she was meeting with the teacher of her language, because, of course, inherent in language is, is individuality and then culture. She was attempting to learn that with her sister every Wednesday. Yeah. And, and then uh, one week, I think the, the, the horror of what she was attempting to do hit her one week when the work she was supposed to learn for the week was how to say in Potawatomi, I am Saturday. Yeah. And she th- apparently threw her hands up in the air and said, I don't get it. And then 
further into the article is the realization that the English language has, I think, 80% nouns and indigenous languages are being and doing languages. Mm -hmm. So what we do through our language is objectify the world. We push it away from us. Mm -hmm. We say is us and the world as if in some way we're not the world. Even when people die, they say they pass over or they pass on. And I'm going to what? Mm. We compost down and become the soil upon which we walk and the future generations of great primordial forests, we're going to be there. It reminds me that there's a number of Indigenous cultures that I've read and been aware of that their word for themselves as a people and the country upon which they live is the same. Exactly the same. It's the same. There is no differentiation between like we are the people and of this country. It's like, no, we are country. Yes. I am country. Yep. Yeah. So this objectifying and pushing away and othering, how does one remedy that if remedy is the right term? I I learn from people that affect my gut. Right. I would prefer to to listen with my body than my ears. Right. Because my body does most of the communication. And when I, I learn again from Robin Wall Kimmer when she explains their recognition of a plant person. Mm. She doesn't say to her students when they're on a walkabout, what's that? She says to the person, who are you? And if she can't learn from the person who they are at that moment, Mm. then she'll go away and study and find out. Now, I did the same thing with you Mm. when I met the Warrigal Green person who was growing in the, the garden. Yeah where I was living in Fitzroy a few years ago. And you explained to me that she was Warrigal Green. They were Warrigal Green. Mm. The person was Warrigal Green. Yeah. And so we developed a relationship. But it's even more than that. I mean, that's, an, that's extraordinary. It, the ordinary becomes extraordinary when we stop recognising it as ordinary. I agree. <clears throat> also, the, the, the extraordinary becomes extraordinary once we accept the extraordinary. So the understanding of saying, who are you to the Warrigal Green person was a breakthrough. But even more than that, again, a few years ago, I watched a documentary and it was on um, Omega-3s. And some interviewers travelling around the world looking for societies that didn't suffer for stroke, mental deficiency, heart attacks, et cetera. And apart from the Inuit and the Japanese, there weren't many, but areas around the Mediterranean were close. And what was discovered was that in this particular area of Crete, the chicken's eggs, the yolk, had the highest form of land-based omega-3s so far known. Mm -hmm. But what wasn't realised and then was, was Mm. that the chickens ate purslane. Oh, yeah, I love purslane. Okay, so I went, ah, all right, so I'm going to go purslane, and I went along to Sarah's nursery. This is the, uh, um, I could almost or call it the arrogance mm. of, of the mentality of, the, of us as a species momentarily. <clears throat> I went along to Sarah's nursery and I bought organic purslane seeds. 
and I lovingly planted them in a pot. What a, what a condescending piece of work. I lovingly planted them in a pot and gave them all the nourishment I thought may be necessary. And the inside of my consciousness was going, grow, you little fuckers, grow. Mm-hmm. So therein lies the problem to start with, <clears throat> is even the secret voices yeah. within ourselves. And nothing happened, Byron. Meanwhile, it's probably coming up in the cracks of the pavement. Well, that's what I was going to say. Within a few weeks, my ent- the garden at the back of the house where I was living is full of purslane. Mm. And then I walk around every street close to where I'm living. Purslane is everywhere. So, of course, I went foraging. Mm-hmm. And I was full of love because I was full of awe. Because Purslane people had heard me and said, are we talking to you or are you talking to us? Mm. Either way, we grow. You either recognize us or you are you're a, you maintain an intentional <clears throat> and enforced blindness. And that enforced blindness is the, the removal of us from an environment that feeds us without the need for money. And that goes back to that con- that story in Ishmael and Chalice and the Blade of the Takers and the Levers. A lever culture is a nomadic culture because <clears throat> if we move from place to place, foraging, the places that we've been have time to recover, mm-hmm. et cetera. And there's a mutuality because we shit in the woods. Mm-hmm. We're putting our compost into the woods and feeding future growth. And that's the reciprocity that I feel is necessary. And the other thing that we're doing constantly, of course, is shedding dander, and that's feeding soil. Right. We also, therefore, I, I feel a responsibility regarding what I eat, what I consume, so that when I shit and when I shed, I'm at least doing it with a sense for myself of doing no harm. Okay. I was having a conversation recently. The person I was talking to was saying how with all this talk of the Pentagon claiming that the UFO phenomena is quote unquote real and this slow dripping of sanctioned disclosure of that phenomena. And this person was talking about how that's going to blow people's minds, right? And that this kind of shift into a, a, a worldview where that has now been sanctioned as permissible thought. And I was saying to them... I see, I see. I'm just very momentarily going to interrupt you and say that I see literally so that when you say blow people's minds, I have quite an interesting okay. image. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Okay. And I'm paraphrasing what the, this individual was saying to me. I was thinking to myself, by all means, the UFO phenomena and the idea and slash reality of extraterrestrial life, it's fucking interesting and worthy of our consideration and all the rest. But the transition from this kind of dead mechanical commercial worldview, the industrialized worldview, into a living world, a living cosmos, something closer to what's called animistic, that is a fucking mind blower. I'm not following. You were saying before, like making the ordinary extraordinary. People are walking around blind to the richness, the personhood of the world around them. Again, you're generalizing. I mean, I could clean that sentence up and say that I perceive. But that's it. That's the thing we have to do. Which? Well, the perception Mm -hmm. that other people are unaware is a perception. And there could very, I mean, this is a a big leap 
to thinking that perhaps this is a technique that's employed to give us a sense of condescension over other people. Right. But it's still condescension because we don't know. And my work, come on, 42 years reading tarot, mm. I get everything from judges to streetwalkers sitting opposite me and learning to speak their language comes through a particular I have learned to speak their languages and through tarot to speak the language of the magistrate or the sex worker. And mm. it's really important to not presume that the person walking down the street from you is unaware because they may very well be a very aware of their environment, but they're being kept separate. And that's the problem. They may. Because we're not introducing ourselves with the story of our clan and consciousness where we're looking at the shallow world of today. Mm. If we don't relate to each other from the depths of our ancestral heritage, we have no stories. And therefore, the ideas of suspicion are allowed to ferment. And those ideas of suspicion... Everything is extraterrestrial. We're, we're on this metaphorical ball speeding through space at an infinitesimal, the fast amount of, of miles per hour heading towards a destiny of which we have no idea <clears throat> with, the, uh, with the supposition that time is both past, is time is past, present and future and not a continuously unfolding now. We don't even think like trees. Come on. That was a generalization, Law. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Checkmate. Um, someone's um, buzzing my doorbell and I'd love to ignore them, but do you want to take five real quick? Take five. Okay. Thank you for your patience. I'm assuming you were patient. It was... Uh, the mailman lady, the male person, the female man at the door. So where the fuck were we? You just checkmated me for being general for generalizing because I'm not in Sri Lanka by the by the banks of a flood, a flooded creek. The first episode of the Octarine tree was me just uh kind of impromptu spilling my guts about intentions for the project and hopes, etc. One of the things I said was that I'm going to be clumsy with my language. And I asked for understanding from those listening if and when I'm clumsy with my language. Now, I don't mean for it to be ignored, but we are in this process. Fuck. I am in this process of active engagement with the world. And I'm all for a reinterpretation of language. I do wonder when it comes to actual words, specific words and terms that we have used to navigate and describe and the world and express, if we're left with only a particular word or set of words that I think are inappropriate or inadequate to describe an event, a thing, a person, a phenomena, whatever. Oh, this is good. This is Where do I draw from? Do I use the words that I have at my disposal and then kind of caveat every sentence to say brackets in search of a better term and then continue? If I just do not have a word in my lexicon, where do I draw from? Do I need to learn Celtic? 
where do I draw from? No, no, no. I, I often get one of my offspring accuses me of being a control freak. And I, um, I made that by saying I'm an opinionated person because I dive into the etymology of words as though the words themselves are a swimming pool or a, a yes, the word navigate is very appropriate because I, I navigate the forest of language, <clears throat> the language, which is the, um, the Latin term lingua franca mm-hmm. of the day is English. Mm-hmm. The lingua franca, the term years ago may have been French and the lingua franca before that was Celtic in the times of the invasions by Rome of both the in search or in, in the desire, I suppose, to um, take possession of the old Silk Road and therefore the trade routes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we went from the language of Conqueridge to the language of Conqueridge, whichever way we look at it, that's what it seems. So English is a mix of French, German, Latin, Celtic, all in together. Mm-hmm. But as English stands, if we work the words in a certain way, we create poetry. Now, as Lynn Kelly explains in the memory code, things like, if I say to you, ring a ring of roses, pocket full of posies, tissue, tissue, we all fall down, what do you think of? The plague. Yes. This is from about the 16th century. So for an approximate, we could say an approximate 400 years The use of a little ditty is influencing us with an historic event. Now, we don't know which plague because we've had plagues from the 12th century onwards up to it, including the word pandemic, which we're in today. But do many people think of the word pandemic as stemming from the word pan? Panic. Which is supposedly a rampant sexual deity that lives amongst the forests and roots, whatever it wants to root. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. word panic, pandemic, pandemonium, pandemonium all stems from that particular word. So having that understanding means that I can write in a way that I'm having an effect. I'm, I'm attempting to do that even today, even as we speak yesterday when I write or when I'm recording the sessions for um, Bandcamp that I'm attempting to get up at the moment. And I say attempting because... Fuck me, working with sine waves can be a real drag after about the first three hours when you end up with mouse shoulder. Hmm? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the poets, it's the poets that whereby the language can be condensed into an area that the brain, this is, again, a generalised idea, but into the area of the brain that says, oh, rhythm, rhythm. That's what I can grab a hold of, rhythm. At one stage in the past, so-called past, my daughter challenged me to write poetry in almost a rap style. Mm. And when I did, she was silent. I got a hmm out of her. For the simple reason that I'm old and I'm not supposed to be able to learn new things. And this is a very strange phenomenon also, is this idea of categorising people. Um, No, I I don't suggest for a moment that we learn Celtic, but I just, I do ask that people hear. Can I give an example? 
Of course. Would you mind? No, go nuts. The idea of Anzac Day and of a prime minister standing in front of a microphone saying they paid the ultimate sacrifice. Now I hear that and I hear paid and I hear the idea of an ultimate sacrifice when I'm aware. When I personally feel my sons on the field of Ypres, when I feel my sons on the coast of Normandy being shot down and having gangrene setting to their withered limbs, having their minds shattered by the understanding that the person right next to them just had his face blown off. Mm. That's what I see. That's what I know. And I that fear radiates right through my body. And when someone in a position of so-called authority, like a prime minister, said they paid the ultimate sacrifice, I say they didn't. They didn't know mm. that this was going to be slaughter. Mm. They didn't know. They would have been terrified. But there also had been... A gen an intergenerational ideology set up that said you to be a man, you've got to go to war. Mm -hmm. You've got to be pre prepared to kill somebody. I don't see that understanding as being part of an indigenous culture. In an, in Australia, the dancing is to understand if you're coming up to a field where there's a, a herd of kangaroos, you better know whether they're comfortable or not. Because if they're not comfortable, they're going to move an ear in a certain way. They're mm. going to move a body part in a certain way. How to read that. And then what people do is they learn to dance those movements and that understanding. Because if you're out in the field, you can't yell out, hey, mate, the kangaroos look like they're doing just bloody fine. Get your spear out. Yeah. Because they're going to run. So the language that's used that we, I feel personally, when we get to the stage that we've got nothing left to say, mm will be an evolved species. I don't know any other species that jabbers on the way we do, attempting to come to some idea of what the fuck is going on, and we all fear, I mean, I'm generalising again, saying we all, <clears throat> so I'll stop that. I've got this hole, Byron, that sits between probably right between my breasts where somebody would pump me if I was needing resuscitation and my groin, there's this hole that says there's something not sitting properly right. in my being. Uh -huh. And until I'm sitting with another animal, usually horse or dog in the instance, not very often people, when I'm sitting with another animal where there's no need to do anything except reciprocate, an emission, not omission, but an emission of self mm -hmm. to that person that says, I'm here to do no harm. Mm -hmm. And that person reciprocates back. There's no words. I'm sitting next to a, a, a Doberman. My Doby's not going to say, hey, I feel comfortable with you mm -hmm. in having a conversation. No. Doby's going to watch the waves, going to chuck me a look. And in that look, it says, you got a stick for me, bitch? Because <laughs> I'm his person and I do identify as female. So even in that sentence, I'm, I'm being appropriate. Yeah. But he do Jungle doesn't do it with his, with his mouth. He doesn't say, you got a stick for me, let's just go play by the water. 
there's a lot of body language goes into that. Yeah. So if I can go back to your conversation earlier about um, what's happening on a society level, it is intriguing, Byron, because the use of face masks, for example, yeah. the inability to have body touch and therefore have all of the the necessary um, release of endorphins into my body that it makes me feel as if I'm experiencing tenderness or gentleness from another human being or another species, okay, mm -hmm. this is all body language and the introduction of t the technology, me looking at you, you looking at me through a screen, means that we don't get to touch each other. We don't have to hug. Mm -hmm. Even with the masks, that lack of being able to see, mm -hmm. How does that work with somebody like me who's partially deaf? When I'm being yelled at by a security guard for what he thinks is somebody who's tattooed going into the supermarket with my, my mask down below my nose and he's yelling at me and I can't hear him because, of course, I, I take my hearing aid out, I can't hear a thing. I'm walking in there. I don't. I can feel him being aggressive towards me mm. and I'm calibrating what he's meaning. I'm calibrating his consciousness. I'm calibrating what he's seeing, who he's seeing, what instructions he may have been given by staff in an environment like Fitzroy North, for example, that has a very high content of drug addiction and a very high content, therefore, of desperation, that yeah. he's got a list of people that he must watch just in case they're thieves and just in case they're reprobates mm -hmm. and he within himself. And I do, I can read body language. I knew he was after me. This is only just the day before yesterday. And mm -hmm. he followed me into the shop. Now I know what happens, for example, I mean, it's difficult because this is not going to be visual, but Bob Hawke used to do this all the time. He'd point his index finger at the crowd. He'd point with his index fingers over the top of the crowd. Mm -hmm. And he was voted into parliament because of that. When he went into parliament, he was taught to put his thumb and his index fingers together because it was not so accusatory. Right. Body language, for example, that puts one's hands out, palm up, mm -hmm. is seemingly giving up. Body language that has the hands face down, palms face down, is sending out messages to, to, to shut up, to sit down. Yeah. When what's-his-name, who was the president of America, was doing this weird thing with his hands like, in and out, in and out, concertina. I didn't yeah. know what he was doing. It was some kind of weird language, almost of like I'm trying to touch you and I'm going to make you feel really uncomfortable by touching you. This is the language that we read. 80% of what we read is body language. Mm -hmm. Once we remove the bodies from the equation, what is there left in language? And then what does it matter? Because it's pretty much the Hunger Games after that. Yeah. How much of what you see in terms of response to COVID do you perceive as being like masks, for example? Okay. There's the face value reason that's given for masks. And then there's what you've described. But how much do you see of the latter as being a conscious 
campaign. How honest do you want me to be? As honest as you're comfortable. I mean, I, I go down this particular route with some trepidation just because it grosses me out so much to think that right. it's not just some regrettable side effect, but it's actually part of the, it's a function, not a bug of the system. It's an intended function. What I think I know through an understanding of a little bit of so-called history that has been written, which is only fairly recently, in the last thousand years, history has been written by, by more than one person, <clears throat> is that as a species, when we become too parasitic, Earth culls us. Right. Like with any, there's summer, there's spring, there's winter, there's there's autumn. For although in in your part of the world, apparently there's there's twelve seasons. Six or twelve. Six or twelve make up a year, um, which makes sense. So I'm just taking the Greek idea of four seasons into account here. Uh -huh. And I'm very aware when even having communication with the birch tree outside. Um whose leaves have all gone into the ground at the moment, who's my current teacher. Mm. And I have a conversation with birch, birch tree person and and all the leaves are dropping and I'm sort of being terribly, terribly human and condescending saying, see, I'll see you next year and birch tree is laughing at me because the leaves that have fallen just recently onto the soil have leached or already leached all of their life force into the soil to nourish the micro the microbiome of the tree so that the roots can pull whatever nourishment is necessary from the surroundings in such a gentle way or such a violent way i don't know what gentle and violent are they're just their observations and whatever um but there is no separation there is no distinction and separation and What's happening with life is that we are being culled. Now, if we're not culled through the creation in a man-made language of the word COVID, then we're going to we'll have well, volcano people will do their thing, um, cyclone people will do their thing, earthquake people will do their thing. I think it's relevant to wonder whether we're actually necessary as a species and whether or not even wondering that is worthwhile. Do you get me? So as far as things like COVID are concerned, um, I could get into the esoterics of it because I did the numerology of the word COVID and it comes to 33, which is a nasty little number, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't understand why this particular pandemic is any different to any other pandemic that we've been having for the last thousand years, except, except for the fact we're in it. And therefore there may be many theories or conspiracy theories about what's happening. But ultimately, if we end up as a wiped out species that starts again in a very small way, <clears throat> um, oh, I could be, I could be accused of being unethical or being, um, or lacking compassion, when I say it's probably preferable for an entire aspect of our civilization to die of hunger, and for those left over, this is not my idea, by the way. This is this is from Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, when the right. gorilla has a conversation. Is aid is being sent to Africa? Africa, of course, is a majestic continent that's been 
violated by the English and the French and the Dutch and the Portuguese and the Germans and you name it. And the people left in a state of confusion neither here nor there, not knowing their and not being completely clear in their ancestral song line. Mm. Um, and of course now all their governments are are in some way representing the that of the United Kingdom for like I don't like that expression, but <laughs> it's mm. what it is. The crown. Um, and there's mass starvation. And then what occurs is that aid agencies, particularly like America, send big bags of GMO grain mm-hmm. and people remain in states of starvation still, just taking their edge off. But a, a friend of mine named Shazay back in um, the Byron Shire many years ago, her son, it, her son's father is African. And her son, therefore, every year was taken back to their village on the west coast of Africa to their ancestral homeland so that he could learn the the ways of the culture of his father's lineage. And the last time she went there, the elder of the village, she was helping the elder of the village shovel grain into the silo. And he sat down and he wept. And she asked what was wrong, and he said, I've killed my village. And she said, I don't understand. He said, I was talked into the grain by Monsanto. And when they were talked into the grain, he was also talked into the chemicals necessary to grow the grain every year. So all that grain is muled. Being muled, it doesn't recycle itself. He's bought into or he's been conned into selling out the village into an alien species of grain and his village is doomed because they're not self-sufficient. You understand this. They're on the crack. It, this is the, the big story. Mm. This is the big, and so Shazay came back to Australia and put on, put on a, a, a charity concert at the A&I Hall in Bangalore to raise enough money to get seed savers to send unmuled seed across to the village to hopefully get them out of the dilemma that they Mm. were caught into, which was basically the death of an ancient line of species. Mm. Now, Earth is forever getting rid of one species or another, and there's a lot of guesswork involved in archaeology, and there's a lot of guesswork and um, interpretation into historic data that we can read. But I do recall when I was in school, before I dropped out of school, learning in geography of all things Mm. about wheat and sheep and coal. And then decades later, when I'm living in Byron Bay and my daughter was 14, she came home from school, decades later, she came home from school and she said, I wanted to have a conversation. She said, I can't mother right now. I've got homework. And I said, what's your homework? She said, geography. And I laughed and I said, what are you learning? Wheat and sheep and coal. And she looked at me confused and she said, yes. Now, we're not taught to navigate our landscapes. We're not taught to understand what a God is. Place, placements, navigational tools, this, stand, this standing stone, that headland, mm. that particular grassy mountain, that valley where the stone, the, the upright stone points to the next meeting ground 
near Loch Ness. We're not mm. taught that this is geography. To understand the niece, to understand the use of certain kinds of stone to make axe heads, their recognition of when to tap the maple tree to get the sap. Mm. We're not taught. We're taught dependence. And I, I am not generalizing when I use we. Mm. That dependence. We are taught dependence. We are taught dependence. And yes, that dependence is to infantilize us Absolutely. as a species. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the only problem that I perceive as being dominant. And that does come from a Christian ideology. And we go back to the concept that you mentioned earlier about the pyramids or you mentioned earlier about um, Egypt. And I did want to say then, and I'll, I'm going back full circle to that by saying I'm not from the Middle East. Okay. And therefore I can't speak about that environment. I do know enough about such things as Masonic orders, et cetera, to understand that the knowledge of architecture and the conceptual straight line mm -hmm. became a, a secret that was hidden between clerics and academics for a lengthy period of time, the idea of the compass, et cetera. <clears throat> These were secret, so-called secret, uh, secret orders <clears throat> because Oh, there's, okay, in the Kalahari, the Kalahari won't go into a house because they, they're understanding, and this is from John Young, this is, oh, this is my words, not his words. Mm -hmm. The Kalahari said, if you go into a house, you come out crazy. Right. It's all these straight lines that don't make sense. We, we, to live in circular dwellings makes sense. To live in a yurt, to live in a gur, to live in a teepee, to live in a, a roundhouse, <clears throat> or to live in a, a very well protected house of bark in uh, Gulf of Carpentaria, for anything, lack of anything else to say. These, the idea of the square, mm -hmm. see, it's, was, it was a a mystery that was kept close to the chest at one stage, the mathematics of the square, of the straight line. That's mm. even where the word true comes from, is a plumb bulb. Right. It's an architectural term. It's been it turned been turned into an ideology. It's the same thing with the idea of the ultimate sacrifice. That word sacrifice is connected etymologically with the concept of sacred. Mm. And therefore there's a religious hint. In the background of that word, they died. They paid the ultimate sacrifice to these boys who died in the Somme mm. because they didn't. They developed, mate, they developed a friendship perhaps with the person beside them, no matter what the colour of their skin, no matter what the ethnicity of their ancestry at all. In times of trauma, we don't think of those things. We're not, and I am generalising, but well, I'm... You know what? Sometimes generalisations hit the nail on the head. They do. Sometimes they do. And we're not taught about these things. We're not taught about trauma as it sits within an individual or a collective. I mean, look at your work with Brittany. 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 I butchered that, your book. Can you speak to the writing of that book and the workshop that came from it, Rivers in the Skin? What would you like me to, uh, where do I start? The whole thing, it's a fascinating angle. The book itself is about the Roman conquest of the British Isles. No. It's not? No. What is it? It's about my people. Okay. The Roman conquest of 
your people? I don't like the word conquest. I'm still here. Okay, great. Now we're getting somewhere. So the book is about? Okay, the book, okay, I'm a, I'm a stolen generation. Right. Okay, I was sold into slavery as a child. We can make that real clear. My sure. ancestry, my heritage was completely archived and was never supposed to be accessed. This was the law of the British government. Mm-hmm. And it was a deal made between the Catholic Church and the British government to invoke the concept of shame, to, to use shame and belittlement to steal one's children. Okay. That's it. So I didn't know who I was. But let's face it. That's the honest truth. I didn't know who I was until very close to 50. Okay. I'd assumed a name in 1997, which was Lydie DeAngelis, because I could not anymore comprehend or deal with being owned. So I needed to create a name that wasn't a man's name, that wasn't a man's name, or my or a mother's man's father's name, or a father's father's name, or this whole idea of being owned by a patriarchal ideology. So I created my own name, which of course comes from a whole other story to do with a particularly magical working that took place between four of us back in 1998. <clears throat> but so I didn't know. But for the for 40 years since my 20s. And, and I, I will interject and let you know that I've been involved in so-called mysticism uh, since 12-year-old. Yeah. So I was very young. Mm-hmm. But it was during my 20s that I started to really question a lot of what I'd been taught and shown that was anything from material to do with Alistair Crowley, the Golden Dawn, OTO, um, Masonic Orders, Gardnerian law, etc. That's a there's a massive amount of information that is still circulating and still seems to make sense, but um, it doesn't. <laughs> so part of that part of my interest has always been break away, look what's underneath, break right. away and look what's underneath. Um, and I think that I don't know what started my exploration. I think it was an understanding of Budega and the gutsiness of a chieftain in an, in an environment that didn't acknowledge externally, at least in the observation of such, a distinction between men and women regarding our capacity and our ability to work together. Mm-hmm. And I've never never comprehended that distinction anyway, so this was kind of right up my proverbial alley, this idea of revolution or rebellion against a status quo, A, because I was owned and I didn't want to be owned. So I wanted to look at this this person, Budega, who's commonly with the Romans called her Boadicea. Okay, yep. Of the Ekin tribe. Mm -hmm. I know Boadicea. The Ekin tribe, the east coast of just above the tribe of the Kantiach people, which is where Kent is now. So they're up above the the area that's now called London, which was Londinium, was Colchester, mm-hmm. around that particular area. So she was married despite, I mean, if I can just break it open, can I do that? And you can then edit out what you want. Please. According to, according to Brayon law, one could have 10 wives and 10 husbands. Mm-hmm. And each one had their own different position. And it was all sorted out. No, from what I've been able to understand, from what I've read from Tacitus, it wasn't necessarily put into practice a lot. However, so if we just take the the 
chronicle of Tacitus into account, mm-hmm. he mentions that what he calls Boadicea, her name was, wasn't a name, Bodega is a title that means bringer of victory. Okay. So Bodega of the Econite tribe chieftain, also known to be Druid, and we'll get to, we can get to that later if you want to, mm-hmm. was in rabbit ears married to a man named, don't know how it's pronounced absolutely, so I'll just say Prashutagus. Okay. It's not how it's pronounced. I know that, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking to you. I've got it. They had two daughters. Yeah. Because of the whole setup of Rome at the time. Oh, and I must mention the trade had been taking place along what's called the Old Silk Road for two thousand years during the Bronze Age. You get a lot of the copper for bronze from Ireland. You get a lot of the tin from down what's now Kerno or Cornwall which at that particular stage in time was the Dumnonii tribe. Mm. So between St. Michael's Mount and Mont Saint-Michel. What was the name of that tribe in Cornwall? That's where um, my father's mother's heritage. Dumnon. Dumnon, okay. If you're you're looking it up, it's spelled Dumnonii, D-U-M-N-O-N-double-I. But that addition of the Roman ending, the -hmm. double I, the double I represents plural and the single I represents just the individual tribal name. But as Celts, what we do is we put emphasis, A, on the first vowel, and secondly, our consonants are are clearly said so that the fuckwitted Romans can understand what we're saying. So if somebody said, I am dumb non-I, I am dumb non Tacitus would hear an I on the end. Okay. That's why when I use the word Britain, there's mm. also a very, very little distinction between the P and the B. So the word Britain is the word Britain. Same with the word Brittany, across in what's referencing modern-day France. Britain, B-R-I-T-A-I-N, is the anglicization of the word Britain, P-R-I-T-E-N-I. Which means? Painted people. Okay. Like me, covered in ink, mm-hmm. tattooed, yes, um, which is what we were called. This is the tribal affiliations of the of the people. Mm-hmm. And I won't say the British Isles because, again, that's buying into the paradigm, but the tribal names of the people, and that includes also the Caledon, the Caledon and the so-called Pict people, the, mm-hmm. the Albanach, Albanach. Because if Scotland, of course, is in a Latin word and the, the name of the people of that particular region is Alban or Albanach, because the word ach on the end of a word means as. So if the, the Scots call themselves Albanach, they're saying I'm as this landscape. Yes, okay. Okay, so Budega is so-called married to Prashutagus. They have two daughters. Prashutagus becomes what's called a client kingdom. All through their period of the old Silk Road, the the Bronze Age, that's 2,000 years of trade. And, yes, we'd sit in a cafe in Kashmir and have a cup of coffee together. People from different parts of Rajasthan would be having a cup of coffee with somebody from what's now known as Dublin because that was the trade route. That trade route's known. So... And, of course, the Celts had a go at Rome and invaded there. So what Rome's decided to do is what every 
so-called empire has done since. They decided we're going to take the road. We're going to take the old Silk Road. We're going to take the commerce. So not only did they sack Britain or the land of my ancestors at the same time as they sacked Jerusalem, but they sacked the lands of the Nabataeans as well. Mm-hmm. which was the area on the border of Jordan at the moment where Petra is, Petra, okay, yeah. to divert the old Silk Road so that they could go bypass that huge um, tribal affiliation of Nabataeans and therefore send them broke pretty much. <clears throat> so they set up things called client kingdoms. You with me? Mm-hmm. Targus bought into that. He made a treaty with Rome that said, when I die, my daughters get half of this land, this territory of the Ekin people, or the Ekin, um, comedy called Ekin Eye. Some mm-hmm. people I call it Icene Eye. It's like, come on, wake up. Um, so the land of the Ekin. He'd made a deal. Budega's like, what the fuck have you done? They're not going to honour the treaty. And Prashitagas, who's got a, a buggered up arm because it's, he had a wound that never healed. And when we look at it from the viewpoint of today, we would say that was a, a staff bug okay. in his arm because it eventually killed him. And when it killed him, the Romans came in and said, oh, yeah, fuck your treaty. And they whipped the skin off Bodega's back and they raped both her children and they took everything that they wanted. And that's eventually why she went to war. She gathered the chieftains together of different nations and she went to war against Rome to attempt to stop this whole thing getting out of hand. Now, my grandfather, for lack of a better word, his name is Caradocup Cunabellinus. And Ku, of course, means hound and Bell is the sun. So in some way, he was considered to be the hound of the sun. In Caradoc or Caradog, my ancestral father, had two brothers, Tochadumnus and Adminius. And they never, where their father kind of acquiesced to the deals made with Rome, and, oh, this is going to sound like trade trade treaties today, <laughs> by the way. I can You can hear the, the echo of exactly what's happening today then. Um, yes. Um, when... Uh, Cunabellinus decided to do deals with Rome. He even created his own coinage. Now, his three sons said, fuck your dad, not having a bar of it, and they rode off because these are the people of the horse and the hound and the hawk, the hunting hawk. They rode off into the west, which is the mountainous area that's now called Wales. Now, it's, it's, it's only a short distance away. I know you've been to Europe. You know everything's a lot closer in Australia. People don't realise how close everything is. Mm-hmm. So Caradoc and Tochadumnus, particularly Tochi, and his brother Adminius, which is a long story around him I won't get into, they gathered the chieftains, and let's face it, that's not men and women, that chieftains are just chieftains. The word was Wazeljaksto. The proto-Celtic word for chieftain is Wazeljaksto, and yeah. I, I'm bound to have every scholar of the languages having their hackles raising right now. I'm sure I'm not presenting it as a correct pronunciation, but who the fuck knows, truth be told, after 2,000 years? Fair enough. <clears throat> um, they're gathered in the Welsh hills, and as Rome moved inwards towards t- the centre of the islands, 
my grandfather and his cohorts rode down, burnt the forts down and rode back up into the Welsh hills. And the expression fight and fight and run away and live to fight another day is supposedly or legendarily associated with my grandfather's expression. Right. So this, this is... This is a thing to understand. So I was studying all this. I was quite fascinated with the tribal names, with the understandings of what had happened, because I think what triggered it was many decades ago, there was a, a doco about the caves around uh, around Dover. Right. And in one of the caves, a skeleton was found that was 40,000 years old. And the researchers decided to do tests on the DNA of the village that was above the caves. And this was new DNA. DNA testing was very new then. Mm -hmm. So these three researchers got together and they took the DNA samples and they put the headmaster in charge of collecting the samples. And the headmaster collected the samples of DNA and everybody goes and gets tested. And the only person in the village who was directly related to that 40,000-year-old woman, the headmaster. So the researchers took him down to look at the body of his grandmother. And the look on his face was one of incredible awe. To know you are living in your ancestral lands, to know that the skulls and the skin you walk on that is called earth is your mother, is to know that all of your ancestors are buried in these, buried or burned in this landscape. So consequently, I'd studied this for 40 years and then finding out who my mother was, which was in 2002, and then following that thread through getting her birth certificate, getting her parents' birth certificate. And I'm first generation born on this on this continent, by the way. So right. very, very fresh and young. I, I can't claim any connection here. <clears throat> um Finding that out, giving that information to Bernard Casimir, who's my friend and a genealogist of, of years, he ran mm -hmm. with it. And he ran with it. And the funny part about genealogy is as long as you've been paying taxes, if you've been paying taxes because you may be once upon a time a landowner, your name is recorded. Yeah. And so my ancestors of the Catavalan tribe paid taxes. Consequently, when he came up, he said to me once, and of course I was bored for ages, and then he came, because my family never moved from this one small triangle of land in among these tribal confederacies of both the Brijantak people and the Karavalanak people. Mm -hmm. So they virtually didn't move. And then to find one day Bernard came, he said, I found somebody who's not English. And I said, whoop to do <clears throat> And he said, his name is Karadok Ap. Silurus. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, the correct terminate the correct pronunciation is Shilaresh. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I was by that stage on the floor going, well, I fucking do. Right. Because the Shilaresh were one of the tribes associated with Wales that was involved in the confederation that attacked Rome to get it out. This is our land. Uh -huh. Rome has no right to be here. From Rome. The, the Saxons come in, the Saxons, the Angles, the Jutes, um, the invasions of the Danes, the Vikings, the Normans, then the Christian church. And it's almost as if we've been written out of history. But mm. to actually then find out that who I've been studying and reading about and 
and feeling an affiliation with 440 years is actually my family. Mm. I relaxed for the first time in my life. I relaxed, Byron. That's remarkable. Because I was not a liar. I was not making up shit Mm. about myself. And what I find in the new age is a lot of people make up shit about who they are. And now what I, what happened as a result of that, I was living in Byron Bay and I was putting on a festival called the Wearing of the Green Pageant, mm-hmm. which was pretty much one of my students in the Tarot Collective's, Patty O'Leary. Mm-hmm. She said, can we please steal St. Patrick's Day back from St. Patrick and, and reclaim it because the music was banned, the language was banned, the culture was banned. Um, the clothing was banned when the English invaded Ireland, uh-huh. Christians when they invaded Ireland, particularly after the Synod of Whitby. Well, we decided to put on a, a, a Celtic festival called the Wearing of the Green Pageant where we claim back the colour mm-hmm. that our ancestors were banned from wearing because they, it was considered a colour of the devil, the same with singing and dancing and language, which is still going on today. Um, so we had a festival that everybody said wouldn't work, but one of the presenters was approached at the railway hotel by an indigenous, an Aboriginal man who said, you whiteys are doing it again. You're claiming another fucking day. Fuck you and fuck your friends and fuck your family and fuck everybody. So Margaret phoned me and she said, I think we should call the police. There's going to, oh, that's right. He said there's going to be a blockade. Right. And Margaret phoned me and said, should we call the police? I said, don't be ridiculous. So I have a, I had an old friend in the area named Lupus, a Kadaicha. Didn't speak much. I was dropping the woman off at the beach hotel to pick up the sound equipment for the festival on the weekend, mm-hmm. on, the, on the Sunday. And when I dropped her off, I went across to the beach front and I spoke to the ocean and I said, Mama, whatever you want whatever you want. And Lupus approached me and he said, tell me this story of these lost tribes. So we sat down on the rocks and I told him these stories. This was before I knew that this was also me. Right. Okay. I told him the story of the lost tribes and the usurpation of an Indigenous people and he said there'll be no blockade and he got up and he walked away. Then on the Sunday morning when the festival was in, the community centre gave us the keys we opened the door. Lupus was waiting for me. He said, some people want to meet you. I go out the back of the community centre and there's three people sitting there and they're First Nation people. And we sat down. We went and got scones and cups of tea and sat down with them and they said, tell us the story of the Lost Tribes. So I did and I was 20 minutes into the story and one of the people said, you're going to make me tea? I said, what am I, you bitch? And we all laughed. And the guy said to me, one of the one of the men, there was two men and one woman. One of the men said to me, we've already heard the story from Lupus. We would consider it an honour to walk at the front of your parade. Mm. And that's what we did. So that was the beginning of an understanding. that, And I also had a lover, a beautiful lover, an Indigenous man. Um, long story around that, but we sat together and he cried when I told him this story because he said no one's, his father was Scottish and a brutal drunk, and he hated the fact that he had what, what he called white blood in him. Yes, because his mother was a, was a, a, a tribal elder in the in the Tari area <clears throat> at that time, long time ago. 
mm-hmm. and he, he, he was embarrassed. So I told him the story and he cried. He said, you give me my pride back because I've been through this before in my father's body. I said, yes, you have. So the rivers and the skin came about after once, once I got the information that Britain, the info, that I, what I've been studying was actually me. Yes. I wrote Britain. I was able to do it. I was able to reach into the whole idea of so-called that which happened 2000 years ago and pull it into now and write the story in the first person and the present tense for my children, because they had no ancestors that they yes. knew of. Yeah. And I gave it to them, but it went viral. Yeah. And then I put on the first workshop was where I condensed that story into a very, very much more brutal understanding of what happened. And I put it on for a few people. And so then I got contacted by a group in Tasmania to put it on the Aboriginal Centre there because if we've got no stories and those, or if our stories are not true, mm. we're perpetuating a dishonour. Yeah. If our stories are true, then they're true. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Who was it who said that an untrue story or a bad metaphor is a, is a curse? Or even the repetition of a metaphor, if it's used two or three times, it's a curse. Lord De Angelis. Yeah. I'm going to have to re-listen to this a couple of times myself because there's a lot to digest. Thank you for taking the time today. And also thank you for me personally for mentoring me over the last odd decade. And uh, doing what few people do, which is call me up on shit, if and when you see it and hear it. I've got the feeling we're relatives. Yeah, I always have. A lot of people haven't got a grandmother who can do this. You became that person for me immediately. I can still remember. And it's strange when Carla, I mean, I didn't know her well at that stage. I had just met her in the, the bookstore in Bondi. And after about a week, she said, I've just contacted my friend, Lai. You were, you were Lai at the time. Um, you're going to go stay with her in Byron Bay. I was like, oh, am I? <laughs> okay, fair enough. And off I went. Yes, I remember immediately, immediately going, okay, I can talk with this person. You've meant a lot to me since then. There's such a story that I, I can't, I know we haven't got time for it, which is when my grandson came to me wanting to do, um, wanting entry into high school this year mm-hmm. in a particular group called the Lighthouse Kids that are required to produce an artwork that will last them all the way, that will be the central theme of their high school years and yeah. the actual scholarship would go around the peripherals. And he wanted to do his on Indigenous Inc. Yeah. So he got onto Skype with me and we had a three-hour conversation. And that three-hour conversation is maybe food for another discussion. Mm-hmm. But he knew that I wasn't making it up. Yeah. And for him, I think, no, I know it's a deeply powerful thing to speak to people and to tell them the truth. Yeah. And not make out it's the truth. Not say, I'm a priestess of ancient Egypt. That's just not true. Hmm. And I don't, and I realize that if we don't really understand our ancestry, if we allow the authorities to continue to own us completely, even though they, and, and we can be killed if we're not owned, if we don't agree to the, uh, the captors, we mm-hmm. can be killed very definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't agree to the captors, we risk losing everybody and everything. Yeah, that's real. And so 
ultimately, I think our work is to raise a middle finger to the captors and then run away. <laughs> to fight another day. Fight another day. That's it. Thank you for raising your middle finger. It's tattooed, see? Can you see that? So consistently, because it can be a lonely path. So thank you for doing it. But you see, apartheid fell because of the power of one, ultimately. So we can be a river. We've got to start somewhere. And reclamation is the river, okay, to no longer have hidden from us our ancestry and our... I mean, our people talk about black and white. I go, hang on a second, this is, this is just a pelt. This is just a fucking pelt I'm wearing. It's not, the colour is irrelevant. So let's dig deeper and have a proper conversation about separation and the idea of condescension and the idea of better than and lesser than. And if we can remove those binary terminology, then we can love. And by love, I mean what I meant, what I mentioned earlier. Could we do this again? Do you come back and we have that discussion? Absolutely love to. Okay. I'd love that too. I think that's a place to leave it for now. Over and out. Okay. I'll call you soon. Yeah, do so. Okay. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. One, two, three. One, two, three.